everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories uh, i'm your host bill cannon i didn't get that i didn't get that perfect cut from the uh from our theme song to this uh, who are those two handsome guys at the end uh, yeah, i know i you know i i it just wasn't perfect i'll get it perfect sooner or later uh so you know what a beautiful thursday it was today i mean you get this really sort nice, of in, in indian summer stuff here in uh in new york uh i'm up in westchester I don't know if if Brooklyn is uh, near the near the North Pole or what, but Brooklyn yeah. probably was, Brooklyn it, was probably beautiful today too, right? Absolutely, very nice. Uh, the weather is real great, and every time I hear our open, it's like an earworm. It stays with me the whole day. I keep whistling. You know, and singing ninety ninety nine percent of the people like they really were positive. They like it. One guy says, "Get rid of that!" Like he didn't even like say he hated it. He said, get rid of it. Like he was ordering me around. He goes, it reminds me of the old Saturday Night Live uh, intro. And I don't like, and I don't like it. I was like, dude, you know, I like the music for sure. That's yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're a master of your own destiny. I mean, don't tell me to get rid of the intro. Get rid. You can leave. Yeah. yeah right, I mean, right. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Well, a volume at that point, you know, you know, somehow people, some, some ways people talk to you. I mean, and you know, you don't. No one responds to that. Like, someone responded to something I said in the chat, and she, and the person said, "You're wrong." And and the thing was, I wasn't wrong. But is that is that the way to to talk to someone to tell them they're wrong? You could wow. say, I. You know what I mean? Yeah. Listen, everybody's got their opinion, but I, I know the the point that you're talking about. And John Walsh asking uh, a medical examiner questions about suspects is just way off base. I don't think uh, I don't know if he did it intentionally, but a, a medical examiner is just it's not in his wheelhouse to talk about a suspect. A medical examiner does exactly that. It medically examine remains of uh, of a human that was uh, the victim of a crime. And, and that's what they do. So to say a suspect, listen, specific evidence is definitely noted. But uh, so that question, yeah, I, you were 100% right on that, Billy. And it's easily explained. You know, I uh, someone else said, I, and I, I read a lot of the chats. And before we get into the case and what we're going to talk about today, I read a lot of the chats. And and so someone said to me the other day, "You're very arrogant with your guests." And and the guests were you, were you the co-host, and it was um, John Pelucci, who's a retired crime scene sergeant. And I, I usually take a deep breath, and then I said, "I said, sir, uh, I worked with John Pelucci on numerous homicides. We we're both sergeants." I said, "That's how I would relate to him and talk to him on the job." So. 
I'm not like sugarcoating it for this, for a podcast. So, and then he was all good with it. He goes, Oh, you work together. Oh, that's good then that you talk. Well, like well, that. To me, to me, that says you're passionate about your craft and I am as well. And uh, sometimes maybe uh, people on the outside could look at it as being, you know, rude or whatever. But uh, listen, at the end of the day, there are times when you have to get a point to Christ, especially in something as serious as, you know, a murder investigation. So I don't take it as, uh, as being rude. I mean, there's, there's a line that's crossed with certain people and, and then it becomes rude, but then you straighten them out. You tell them, but uh, you're passionate, Billy. And I respect that a lot. Well, thank you. You know, and, and I, I, my favorite line is, and I used to say this on the police department, I used to say, look, I'm not for everybody. I'm an, I'm an acquired taste. <laughs> you know, if you don't like me, I don't know what to tell you. But as I said, you can't be universally loved in this world. You really can't. No of matter, course, like, you know, some people are going to love you, some uh, not so much, you know. You, you know what else? There's another component to that. You, when you're a supervisor, the buck stops with you, so to speak, uh, and you're in charge of you're in charge of a squad of guys, maybe 15 detectives. So, you know, at the end of the day, if the shit hits the fan, as they say, the chief of detectives wasn't going to call me if something happened. They were going to call you first, you know, and right. then of course, and, and you and as a boss, you take the heat for your detectives. If the, your detectives do something wrong, a boss above you doesn't yell at them; he yells at you. Right. So you have to have. I always say we have thicker skin. But we really don't. But you do have to have thicker skin to uh, put up with some of the stuff. Mario Cutie, great show. Greetings from Switzerland. I love when you people come from Switzerland. Love it. Do you guys love in Switzerland it. still have that Saint Bernard with the the cask of of liquor around <laughs> his around his neck in case you get lost out in the snow? Or is that that's just uh that's sort of just a wife's tale. I love that though. I love the picture of that. You know, there were days anyway, like, I could have used a little. Uh, yeah, I could have used a little nip of that too. Of yeah. Saint Bernard running by with some uh, a little yeah. Irish whiskey or something, right? Sure, for sure. Darlene Voigt says, "I think John Walsh asked that question deliberately. He knows better, or he should. He, even yeah, I understand why Doctor Blue could not answer. Well, especially Darlene, when Doctor Blue prefaced it by saying, look, 'Look, I'm only going to answer questions.'" about the manner and the cause of death today. Anything else is not in my purview. It's in the purview of the police. And right after he said that, John Walsh comes on and goes, do you think there's DNA of of uh, Brian Laundriana? And do you think he's the suspect? Do you think he did it? I was like, where did that come from? He just told him yeah. he's not going to answer any of that. You know? Yeah, he he was sensationalizing. I would uh, venture to say, based on his uh, his new show and everything like that. And like you said, he should know better. Or the or the uh, comment that, that was just up there, uh, he probably should know better. Um, and you know, going to Doctor Brent Blue, he said something that was telling during that autopsy uh, press conference. Uh, he related to domestic violence being a component to this murder. I don't think from the examination of anybody, you could come to that conclusion. I think that sounded like, I don't know if he slipped or if he's basing it on, you know, the history that we know that's been going on for the last few weeks, uh, or if it's just his own personal opinion that he believes domestic violence was uh, possibly at the root cause of uh, Gabby Petito's uh, death. So uh, what do you think about that, Billy? You think that was a slip of the tongue? or you Yeah, think I, you know, I don't think that was in his purview either. He sort of got... No he sort of got tricked into going to other areas, even though he yeah. said he wasn't going to, I think he also mentioned that she in fact was not pregnant, which, yeah. uh, which a lot of people were 
asking about or worrying about. Maybe thought some people thought that that could have indicated motive. Uh, sure. Call these signs. Do you think Gabby's parents are having her cremated so that any defense team cannot do their own autopsy? Smart move, no. in my opinion. Carly, thank you for the 449 super chat. I don't think that. I think that there also probably wasn't a lot left to her. Exactly. I, I don't know what exactly. how easier to put it out there, but she was out in the elements for tw at least 23 days, maybe longer. So I don't think um, there was that much left of, of her body after that. And, uh, you know, it's horrible to say, but Phil and I have been to hundreds of, of murder scenes, seen hundreds of dead bodies, and uh, they decompose after a, a certain amount of time, especially in this location. It was hot during the day, cold during the night. That can really speed up uh, the breakdown of the body, you know. And uh, in addition, animals, insects, all of those things. I think one of the things I just wanted to, to mention quickly, and we're going to play the tape later on. I, I, everyone here that's listened to the show knows my um, how much I like Barbara Butcher. I think she's brilliant. Uh, and if you don't know who she is from watching our show, a duty run show, she was the uh, chief of staff of the New York City office of the chief medical examiner for 24 years. She is nothing but brilliant. I am shocked that the national TV stations, that the, the network television absolutely does not use her as a talking head. She's the most brilliant uh, medical legal investigator, I think, in the country. And they're putting on all these people that really are not in her league. And she is, she was on Duty Ron's show last night, and I'm going to play a little bit of it later. Duty Ron, since we're friends, he allows me to use his uh, his stuff without copyright. He won't slap me with a copyright. I got to stay friends with him, you know. But uh, not everyone's allowed to do that. In fact, you know, if you use another content creator's uh, stuff without asking them, they can hit you with a copyright strike. I've been, my show's actually been used by other people and I never said anything, you know. Uh, but I, maybe if I had 113,000 subscribers, I'd be like, hey, don't do that. What are you doing? What do you think you're doing? <laughs> wow, it right? sounds like the Brooklyn's coming out. That's right. I, I have to come out with some little Brooklyn accent and, and intimidate them a little bit. Hey, what's the Going matter back for you? To Barbara Butcher, though, she, she pales in comparison way ahead of any talking head that you see on, like you said, the national or even the local news. Uh, I think she's very methodical when she speaks. She won't uh, get, you know, tricked into saying something that's not part of her purview in science. You know, she's very, very, uh, very educational. I learned a few things from watching that episode last night, specifically about uh, when they talked about how the maggots can be, um, you know, ground down and examined to see toxicology if there's not a lot of the body that's left. And then she also explained about the time of death uh, related to the maggots. Again, how they go from one form to another. They start out as fly lava. They go into the maggot. They eat. They eat flesh. Unfortunately, I didn't want to go there with that. But and then they have an, another stage that they go into. Uh, and and you can tell that there's a time frame. I think she said it was about two weeks. And then you'll have a second group, which would indicate a second set of two weeks. And I guess they can tell from how far that's been matured and uh, really interesting stuff. I mean, we knew that, you know, from homicide investigation about bugs can tell cause, uh, not cause of death, time of death, time of death, stuff yes. like that. But uh, she really dug down deep and, and she drilled down on a lot of those specifics. It was very, very smart. 
And I think it was very educational for uh, a person like myself who, who really didn't have that much knowledge about that specific part of, uh, you know, the investigation. And she even brought up about the anthropologist. It was really, really an informative show. The the odontologist, which is uh, yes. a, a forensic dentist, which they yes. can compare the teeth. Yes. I mean, it's, I told duty, Ron, I said, you know something, watching your show from last night, they should really play that in colleges. Absolutely. To, uh, in forensic science classes to show, uh, you know, time of death, uh, uh, cause of death and how they would uh, come up with that. Cause it was really brilliant. And I think that folks in the, in the YouTube community and the real crime community, uh, it's so valuable. And I, I you know, there's, there's people on uh, YouTube that really have no experience in homicide or in, or in uh, investigating violent crime. Sure. I don't know. I don't know what really you're going to learn from them other than me. Some of them are good storytellers, but they're not really uh, versed in that. But when you watch someone like Barbara Butcher, and I, uh, I know that when she said she's been to 680 homicide scenes, I know she's telling the truth. Sure. A lot, a lot of people throw out numbers and you're like, wait a minute. Some guy threw out a number on LinkedIn the other day. He goes, dog has made 8,000 apprehensions. And I said, hold it, dude. Stop right there. That is bullshit. Because 8,000 apprehensions, if you did one every day, would take you 22 years of making an apprehension every right. single right. Do you wanna do you wanna amend that, sir? Yeah. He never he never got back to me because he realized yeah. I caught him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, 8,000 exactly. apprehensions. Yeah, 22 years straight. Every yeah. single day he's apprehending somebody. Yeah, you exactly. Know? You know, Barbara made a, a couple of good points too. Now, going backing up a little bit, we talked about Dr. Brent Blue, who gave the uh, cause of death and the manner of death in that press conference the other day. And she pointed something out that in most other states, you don't need to have a degree in criminology or anything like that. You just have to, uh, believe it or not, have a high school education. And if you're elected to the position or if you're picked to be the coroner for that jurisdiction, um, you only have to take a criminology course within your first year. So I doubt how many press conferences this Dr. Brent Blue did. And I'm not trying to knock him in any way when I, when I said uh, that he may have slipped up when he brought out uh, that it might have had a domestic violence component. He's probably not very, very well versed in doing press conferences and stuff like that. And we don't know how many autopsies he's actually performed and things like that. So, you know, uh, you get good at these things, obviously, with experience, but having knowledge and, uh, you know, uh, if you're taking courses in the field, obviously, you'll be a little bit more well-versed. And there was one other thing, that, that uh, comment that you had last put up about the family going to cremate the body. That may be the reason why that they held the body for so long. Uh, they wanted to do further examination, and they knew that once the body was given back to the family, that if their intention was to cremate, again, we don't want to even think about it, but like Billy, you mentioned, uh, there may not have been a whole lot to uh, recover right. uh, based on the fact that it was out in the wilderness for almost four weeks. And then we had the animal component and things like that. So again, uh, I don't think if there was a person in custody and arrested in charge, I think the defense could have asked for their own autopsy. Um, I don't know where that would have went, but I don't think that that was a, a, a factor in any of the uh, decisions made as far as cremate and Gabby. You know, I had heard a uh, duty run say that the family had her cremated in Wyoming and they were going to bring her ashes home for a, a final 
a resting place. That makes sense. I would imagine, sure. You know, there would be prohibitive costs to do it the other way around. You know, to bring it and 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 that that can be a consideration. I'm going to pull up uh, Barbara Butcher. Some of the stuff she said on Duty Ron's show last night. And again, I want to shout out to Duty Ron for thanking him for allowing me to use this. And I'm going to play this right now. It says manual strangulation, parentheses, throttling. So it was not strangling with a rope or a tie or anything else, but by hand. Um, and then the second thing, he, uh, of course, he said it's a homicide. Uh, and then as the questions from the press came in, um, they asked about the time of death. And they said three to four weeks before her body was found. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of things to unpack here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, someone asked him, uh, well, let's, let's say first, how did he determine that cause of death? And how, how did he determine that time of death? Uh, when we spoke last week, we talked about the likelihood that um, Gabby having been out in the, in the wild for three to four weeks that animal activity, decomposition, and such wouldn't most likely result in skeletal remains being found. So how did he determine, if that's the case, how did he determine the cause of death? And I think the hint here for us is when a reporter asked him, why did it take so long? He said, we had to consult, we brought in an a forensic pathologist and a forensic anthropologist. So what do anthropologists do? They study bones, skeletal remains. And in the case of strangulation, if you don't have a body where you could see finger marks, where you could see the hemorrhages in the strap muscles of the neck, what do you have? The hyoid bone. Um, and Stop me if I'm going on too long here. No, no, you're perfect because we spoke about a lot of this in previous streams, but this is right at the forefront of what everyone is interested in. So please, please continue on, Barbara. So the hyoid bone is a tiny U-shaped little bone, like two little horns and then a centerpiece. And it's right up here under the chin. It's a little free-floating bone and muscles are attached to it to give them like a base to pull against each other. And it's useful in swallowing and in speech. When there's manual strangulation, and sometimes with a ligature as well, squeezing here pushes together those two little horns and the hyoid bone fractures. So it would, oh, there you go, perfect picture, thank you. I'm going to get this main one up right here. So it would be likely that they had a forensic anthropologist there because we. Folks, I just want to say that uh, as you listen to Barbara Butcher, she didn't get to speak this way through just uh, going to 680 homicide scenes. She taught for years at the criminal investigation course for the NYPD, which was one of the most highly respected criminal investigation courses in the nation. People from all over the country would come to that course, as well as the homicide course, and people like Barbara Butcher would speak at it. That's why her 
she's a scientist. She speaks with such measured tones. She speaks with such authority. And she speaks with such respect for the dead. I just wanted to mention that. I've I've taken her courses, and she's a, I can't say enough. She's a brilliant woman, and I've learned so much from her. I'd love to take her courses now. I think she's fantastic, Billy. Amazing. Let me keep this going. We have skeletal remains, bones to examine. And how could he determine from skeletal remains, strangulation, a fractured hyoid bone? Now, let me ask you, uh, not to cut you off because your thoughts and your uh, information is so important to the audience. Um, this whole U-shape, it almost looks like a um, uh, shoehorn. Um, yeah. This, what breaks exactly? Is it these side pieces or is it here in the center? Is this cartilage here in the center or is this bone on the left, bone on the right, and then these two little tooth eye bones? Yeah. Well, we have the greater horns. Those are the two, you know, longer pieces sticking up and then the lesser horns and then the body, uh, which is a more solid bone. Um, what I actually breaks? It would be the greater horn. From the I mean, sometimes, from the get, sometimes you could get fractures of both horns. Sometimes in, in with quite a bit of force, you could get a fracture of the body of the hyoid bone. But, um, and I can't give you percentages, but you know, they, they do exist of, of, of which fractures most easily. But what I've seen, um, you know, in my experience is just either of the greater horns fracturing. Folks, I just want to say another comment here. Uh, this is so important because of the, the decomposition of the body and the fact that the skin probably wouldn't be there around the neck area, that this is a clear indication of strangulation. And the uh, the doctor, uh, Brent Blue, used the term throttling, which I had never actually heard before in my homicide career. That was the first time I'd heard it. And when they talk about manual strangulation, it's just not the hands around the neck. It could be a forearm placed against the neck or uh, uh, your knee or another part of the body. That's manual. But the term throttling, specifically now you know, it was with the hands. It's almost like when you hear the term shaken baby syndrome, when they, they shake the, and the baby's head, but that's throttling is having your hands around the neck and actually putting pressure on it. So you can understand how easily the hyoid bone could be broken in that way. And that's why this demonstration by Barbara Butcher is just, just brilliant in explaining. It's like we're all in a classroom now and she's teaching us. Go ahead, Phil. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, I wanted to point out, I had never heard the expression throttling re regarding, uh, you know, an autopsy before like you. But when I heard the word, I, I felt it had something to do with pressure. Of course, if you're throttling, you're, you're increasing pressure. So I could clearly see how those two greater horns in the position that they're in, how if there's pressure put on the sides of them, how they could snap or fracture. And that's a clear indication of manual strangulation. Now, when we talked about the skin, the skin may still be in some form. It's going to be decomposed. It's not going to show, you know, uh, on a fresh 
uh, victim, there would be bruising, there would be, uh, you know, clear skin and then bruised skin. So you'd have a, a pattern that would show where the, uh, where the manual strangulation took place on the neck. Now the condition three, four weeks later, it may or may not even be there, but if it is, it's going to be in a very decomposed state. It'd probably be blackened and dark, and it would be very difficult to pick up any of these bruises, even from the inside. So, uh, but that, that, uh, diagram right there, I think, uh, shows it very well. And like you said, this is like being in a classroom, Bill, or we're learning something here. That's the old expression, a picture's worth a thousand words. Let me go back to it. Yep. Over here on the right and the left. So the second, uh, one thing uh, also that he meant, oh, so time of death. Um, a reporter asked, was, were any samples sent to an entomologist. What's an entomologist? Uh, a scientist who studies bugs. And he said, yes, they were sent to the FBI entomologist. Great, that gives us another huge clue here. If there were bugs, that means there's decomposition. And what entomologists do is they're expert in the, in the life cycles of bugs. Um, and so if they follow the life cycles of the insects found on her remains, they will be able to tell you within, you know, days, not, not hours, certainly, but they could say three to four weeks. And that's how he would base his time of death on entomology. Ed, you know, we've been at so many scenes where the, the common blowfly you find in New York um, it lays its eggs as soon as the person's dead on the moist open surfaces of the body, lays its eggs. A few days later, they become pupa, which crawl off and sort of develop and grow. And then they hatch into, oh, well, I forgot the maggot stage. Maggots, yes. Yeah, eggs turn into maggots, which feed, which become pupa, which crawl off. They look like little brown rice krispies, and then they hatch into flies again. That whole process takes almost two weeks. So entomologists would come in and say, oh, I have two sets of the pupa, meaning we've got four weeks, or I've got one set of pupa, and that means it's two weeks since death. So the entomologist at the FBI would be able to look at those generations of flies or cadaver worms or any of the bugs that are native to that area and give a, a, a rough time of death. So I, I think this, this all supports our um, initial inference that the remains were skeletal and, and decomposed and and, and, and he did say at one point, someone said, what was the condition of the remains? He said, I, I can't tell you that. But she was outside for three or four weeks. And, and I think that says everything. I, two weeks ago, Barbara, you uh, told our audience that, um, the, you know, 20 plus days out in the wilderness, uh, you had the extreme heat in the day, cold at night. You got your wildlife that's out there. You have your bugs. And um, the condition of the body is, uh, again, it's clear and evident that it was not a pristine body like you would come to uh, of, a of a dear loved one that passed overnight. Mm -hmm. So um, they definitely did have, and a lot of people 
I want to just say thank you to everyone that's in the audience here. Uh, the viewing audience, if you can, at the end of the 30 minutes, we're going to have. I don't want to steal too much of duty sure. on the show. He's going to send me a request for residuals. He may send and, uh, you. Uh, yeah, he might send me a duty run. Thank you so much for allowing me to use that. That was brilliant. I mean, that was a great panel all around, Bill. Between the three yes. of them, that was just such a great episode. Uh, they really hit all the points, and uh, she's phenomenal. And Ed Wallace is great, and duty run is. He speaks for himself. He's great. Well, you, you know, Liz Phil, it's it's not just the information; it's the respectful. Yeah, that, that they deliver it, you know, especially Barbara. I'm partial to Barbara. Duty Ron and Ed Wallace, they're not they're not as pretty as Barbara. <laughs> and I, you, you know I, what? I, the true professionalism comes through. That that's what we try to do on this show. We try to remain professional, and a lot of times we won't put things out there unless they're fact or they're re reported from national news, which is generally pretty uh, on point. So, and, and that was a great show. I really enjoyed it. I, I can't say enough about it. I, I called Duty Run after watching it. I just said it was it was a brilliant show. In fact, you know, he had that show with barbara and ed that a couple of weeks ago i said it broke the internet had a 1.7 million yeah. views yeah and this i was actually better so go yeah. figure it you you, yeah. you can't really yeah. figure it rita schaefer thank you so much for the 499 super sticker stays the case one of our members our youtube members thank you so much you guys uh folks if you're not uh, a member of uh police off the cuff if you're not a uh, you're not subscribed please go to our uh our channel and uh, hit the subscribe button, give us the thumbs up, ring that bell. Uh, we also have a Patreon. Uh, our Patreon is falling off of late. I don't know if we're losing popularity, but the, we could use your help. Um, duty, Ron. Oh, my God. <laughs> duty, Ron. <laughs> duty, not, not only, did, not only did, he, did, he, um, did he not ask for a residual, Duty, Ron just gave me 50 bucks. I guess he likes when I use his content. He's getting more fans off of my channel. Go figure, Duty Ron. Thank you so much. Good I, man, Duty Ron. I Good always man. praise Duty Ron. He's helped me yeah. so much grow my channel on this. But uh, as I said, uh, you guys join our YouTube, become a member of the Police Off the Cuff family. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, Joe Murray was supposed to be on tonight, but he got caught in a uh, a hearing where he can't get out. The other attorneys asking too many damn questions. That's why lawyers get five fifty an hour. You know they can get stuck. And they can't go on their favorite podcast. Yeah. If Joe makes it, uh, we'll put him right on. But I don't know if he's going to make it tonight. But luckily, uh, myself and uh, Phil, straight out of Brooklyn, Grimaldi, we got enough. Uh, we got enough stuff to talk about. Um, yeah, definitely. There's there, there's a lot of things that I know Joe would be looking to go over with regard to what we know about the uh, the autopsy results and cause of death and all of that. But uh, he's not here. Hopefully he'll join in. But I I'm sure, based on what we know, and Bill, I think you and I are in the same court with this. We're on the same uh, wavelength. Um, you know, Brian, it's looking worse and worse for Brian. And uh, there's a lot of circumstantial things that we'll talk about. Uh, regarding him, his actions, what we know, what transpired beforehand. And there's pre a few other things about the autopsy that I'd like to bring up. Uh, would you mind if I bring it up now, Bill? Bill, go ahead. You, you know, you're well, a, your co-host. I'm not going to silence you. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I just, I, I wanted to see where you were at with the, with the way we're going with the show. But Barbara Butcher talked about 
And it was released by Dr. Brent Ballou that, uh, you know, they went through the forensic pathologist, the forensic anthropologist, toxicology. He mentioned that she wasn't pregnant. We talked about a possibility of even a rape kit being done and stuff like that. But the whole body CT scan. Now, when Barbara Butcher talked about it, she says, I don't know why they did that. Now, what I'm thinking is this. They may have done that to see if there was any other injuries that could have been attributed to a domestic violence situation that may have healed up already. That's what I would be looking for. Rib cage damage, uh, bruising on arm shoulders. Now, if there's an injury that occurred in the last, now they're supposedly living together for two years. So there's injuries that uh, when they heal up, you can give uh, a period of time that you believe the injury occurred and stuff like that. So the CT scan may have been done for that. She did mention though, the reason she didn't see a need for it was because if you have the forensic forensic anthropologist present examining the body, they can look at the bones, but maybe, um, you know, if the, if the body was in such a severe state of decomposition, the CT scan would be done. And I guess that would also, you know, rule out any, uh, bullet wounds. If there's a, a bullet inside the body, stab wounds could be picked up on a, on a CT scan. If there's a mark and let's say a rib cage or a specific bone. So I think that the, the need for it was definitely there. I don't know if she would disagree with what I'm saying, but that's what my thinking was with regard to the CT scan. You know, Phil, I want to comment on what someone in the chat just said. And Teresa Schmidt, thank you very much for the $5 super chat. She says, manual strangulation slash throttling. People have been using the terms crime of passion and a fit of rage synonymously. It's been driving me nuts. Well, you know, one of the things, and I'm not, I'm not going to be, I told you so, like, or a TV station that goes, we were first. But I, I had predicted before this, it came out, the cause of death, that it was going to be strangulation. And that was because of my feelings about Brian Laundrie's personality. I didn't see him as a guy that would beat her. I didn't see him in, in that way. I didn't see him some a guy who would stab her or a gunshot. I felt that it was going to be strangulation or asphyxiation. And it was just a, it was just an instinct that I thought that. So crime of passion, fit of rage. Look, they had some, it looked, it appears that they had some domestic violence issues, you know, and they weren't obviously getting along. Did living in a van for two months have anything to do with it? Or probably their relationship was the same when they lived in the laundry household. Uh, I, I, uh, Teresa, I don't know exactly. Um, you just don't like the terms crime of passion or fit of rage synonymously. Yeah, I can understand, right, using them synonymously. Was this a crime of passion? No, I think it's more fits a fit of rage that at some point he became so enraged that he put his hands on her neck and using the terms of the pathologist, he throttled her. And you can't, I, when you do that, I don't think you could say it was accidental. When you use enough force to break the hyoid bone, that's pretty significant. Phil, thoughts? Yes, thoughts. On that uh, that uh, comment that that young lady put up, um, I think that, uh, you know, based on history, they use the word crime of passion. Now, we had a crime of passion case in New York City last night where a police officer shot her ex-lover and the ex-lover's new girlfriend. And that's when they talk about a crime of passion. Husband and wife get into a heated argument and the husband kills the wife or the wife kills the husband. Those are considered crime of passion. Um, 
With regard to a fit of rage, I, I think, Billy, you hit it right on the head. Now, before the autopsy results were released, we spoke on the morning of the day that they were released. They were released from a press conference at 2.30. You and I spoke that morning, and we both had the same feeling. I said, I think it's going to be uh, strangulation, asphyxiation, or my second choice would have been blunt force trauma. You know, again, in a fit of rage, maybe banging a person's head or something like that. So uh, I think we were right on target with that. And that's coming from, we're not, you know, we're not, I'm not the amazing Kreskin. I didn't pull that out of a crystal ball. It's from past history. We could see that there was mutual combatants in the uh, August 12th uh, situation where they were stopped from the body camera. The body camera footage, we got a, a pretty good idea that there was mutual combatants there, that they were physical with one another. And it sounds like they had a volatile relationship in the past based on one of Gabby's friends saying that uh, he wouldn't allow her to go out. He would steal her identification. That shows uh, possessiveness and trying to control her. So we're taking all these components from our past experience in law enforcement, dealing with domestic violence situations, and uh, that's how we're coming to these conclusions. Now, it's driving her crazy to, to, to hear those terms. Those are terms that are uh, generally used in domestic violence cases. And uh, I guess maybe synonymously, yeah, I get that point that she was saying uh, they're not the same. Uh, maybe that's what was upsetting her. But uh, I think that those statements are being made based on, you know, we have a lot of information here in this case. We have a way more than you have in most cases because of the fact that Gabby and, and Brian were uh, documenting their trip on social media. And then we had that August 12th interaction with the police. And then we have the other uh, fight on the 27th of August where witnesses indicate that, uh, you know, Brian became violent, became angry. Uh, uh, she had to go back into the restaurant I think it was called the piglet. They had this problem with the maitre d' in the restaurant. She went back in and apologized. She was obviously upset. So we're getting a clear picture of what was going on in their life and in their relationship before this horrible murder. So that's where we're coming to these conclusions. David Walzak, I just want to address uh, what you said, because I believe that part of our uh, job here besides to entertain is to educate. And your, your comment is no evidence, no crime. Leave Brian alone. You know, one of the biggest pieces of evidence there is, is Gabby Petito's body. And she's screaming from the other side, from the side of death, someone murdered me. And the broken hyoid bone, and this being determined by science, oh. by science, to be a homicide. If that's not enough evidence for you, and then if I need to, I'll just give a bunch of circumstantial evidence to tie Brian to this scientific fact that there was a murder here. So some of the circumstantial evidence was he was with her. They were engaged. He drove home with her van without her. He used her debit card to buy uh, whatever he bought. He charged $1,000. He came home and immediately lawyered up. He came home and disappeared. That I don't need to give you any more circumstantial evidence. There's plenty more. Uh, Bill, I got to address this. I mean, my back went up the minute I read that sentence and it's ridiculous. I don't think David Walzak, I think is the way you pronounce his name or Walchuk. Walshak. Walshak. Whatever. David, I don't think you'd be saying that if it was your sister or if it was a relative of yours. How could you possibly come to that conclusion to leave Brian alone? He has not made himself available to be interviewed. He's lawyered up right off the bat that red flag number one. As Billy indicated, 
He came home with her van. She's left dead in the, in the wilderness. And he just goes on about his life. There's so much suspicion and so much circumstantial evidence. I can't even imagine. I hope you're joking with that comment that you said that because that is so ridiculous. Okay. And if he had nothing to hide, he would have definitely addressed it with her family that I, I left her. I don't know what happened. He would have been cooperating from day one. He did absolutely nothing. And as the day goes on, days go on, he makes himself look more and more guilty that he's not surfacing and he's not responding. And you're just way off with that one. Kelly Grant, I'm just going to address this. And, uh, you know, we don't just sometimes people say, oh, you only read the uh, people that give you money. It's not true. I, I read other not. people's comments. Kelly Grant, the coroner said she died from strangulation with throttling. So the body scan would show all contusions, bruising, fractures on the body. So throttling is one or two hands or a flashlight. It's violent. Kelly, I'm just going to remind you what Barbara Butcher said. And yeah. she said that the remains were probably skeletal. So if you had a body that was fresh or a day or two, you would see bruising in the tissue, but the tissue probably wasn't present because the body was lying there for 22 to 23 days, maybe longer. So that t chances are that there was no tissue, but a definitive sign that this was a homicide was the broken hyoid bone. And the fact that it was a strangulation. And this, that's the first time I, as I said that I, I've heard the term throttling. Maybe that's a uh, a Wyoming term. I, I never heard it in New York. <laughs> yeah, I never heard that either, Billy. And I think you hit all the points on that. Um, if the body was intact, yes, 100% that comment would have been correct. But there's so much going on. And we don't know because we're not privy to the case folder. We didn't see the actual crime scene photos. So we don't know what condition that body was in. There could have been a lot of a lot of flesh still left. It's possible. But with all the interdiction of animals and 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 the insects and everything and the time frame, the heat, uh, I, uh, Pellucci brought up the other day when it was a crime scene sergeant. When I mentioned the sweatshirt, I thought maybe that might preserve some of the uh, – some of the tissue, but he said, actually, on the contrary, with the heat, uh, the sweat, if she was wearing a sweatshirt, that would indi uh, that would build more heat. So it would cause more decomposition. Maybe at night, um, you know, the coolness would, would uh, slow it down a little bit. But again, if it was exposed to the sun, if the body was exposed to the sun, the heat, and then she was wearing that sweatshirt, that would definitely accelerate decomposition. Uh, Susan Yaksh, uh, great uh, question. Is it true that without their cell phones, the FBI can still gather all the phone calls and text messages and GPS coordinates? Yes, all they need is the number. That's all they need. They don't physically need the phone. They just need the cell phone number and the carrier. They'll find out the carrier, and they can get all the information you just enumerated right there. The call detail, the text messages, the GPS coordinates, all of that stuff, just by having uh, the numbers. And what they need is... They need to get a search warrant to do that, which I'm sure they have obtained by now. Yeah, Susan, that's a great point that you brought up. If Joe Murray were on the show, I'm sure he'd be making a case for Brian's defense. And that was one of the things that I had loaded and ready to go. The cell phone technology, uh, the police would be issuing subpoenas to the carriers right away on that. And, you know, um, there may not be a lot of specific evidence left on Gabby's body that would tie 
Brian to the actual homicide. Now, we do have the broken hyoid bone that shows manual strangulation. Yes, uh, fingerprints, touch DNA, all of that stuff could be explained away because they were obviously, they were romantic. They were together for a long period of time. But can Brian say that he was not in the area if his cell phone was pinging specifically in that area and in around that area and in around the time that we believe she was murdered. Those are the things that will definitely uh, link him to. It's going to be circumstantial. Um, you know, the other part of it is there'll be text messages back and forth. Maybe they were texting to one another, uh, maybe right after that argument that happened earlier in the day on the 27th in the piglet, he could have said something very horrible. Uh, we don't know what those text messages are going to show, but, uh, for him to turn around and say, it wasn't me, it was somebody else. He'd have to get on the stand and explain that his lawyer would be able to put that out in a way, maybe in an opening statement or questioning of specific witnesses. Could it be this or that? But for him to really answer it and make a defense that it wasn't him, he'd have to get on that stand and a good prosecutor would probably be able to trip him up real easily. Um, before Joanne, a before I thank you for your 499 super chat, I just want to address something. Someone just, again, someone's doubting my expertise. Someone's saying they don't need a carrier. Yeah, you do need a carrier to address the warrant to. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, know, I mean, I don't know why you're challenging me. You need yeah. the carrier to send the subpoena goes right to the carrier. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why you yeah. need the carrier. But anyway, I, I don't know. Sometimes I'm getting annoyed when people question elementary things, but that's fine. You have the right to do that. I want to bring up one quick point before you go to this comment, Bill, real quick. Uh, a cell phone tower can have multiple carriers on it. That's an important thing. Now, the, the phone that's registered to the specific carrier, that's where the subpoena would go. However, if it's hitting a cell tower, they can actually dump a cell tower. There could be multiple carriers on there because there's multiple different cell phones hitting that. So that's just a little something on the side regarding that last comment. Uh, John A., I appreciate you guys uh, being very informative and factual about the case, do you think the Utah police should have arrest one of them? We, we you know, we went over that uh, pretty much ad nauseum, and we both of us felt that the Utah police did a pretty damn good job. However, we didn't have the information uh, in regards to the nine one one caller that had said that he saw her. Uh, they saw him smacking her. Smacking her, yeah. And had I known that. Uh, you know, there's something in, in domestic violence called a primary aggressor. I think it would have been very difficult to figure that out because he also had cuts on his face. I think she had hit him in the face with her cell phone. And being a boss uh, like in New York City and having gone to hundreds and hundreds of domestic violence incidents, because I couldn't determine who the primary aggressor was, I, I would have arrested both of them. But that's having now knowing all that information. I don't know when that information, what if it was timely and it was known at the scene. If it was known at the scene and I was called to the scene and I was a sergeant, I was a boss, I would have arrested both of them. Would that have prevented the murder? I don't know. No, nobody really knows, but I do agree with that, Bill, based on that. Uh, and there was something else that when we had Gisela Kirsten on the other day from Grizzly Books, she made such a great point about, I think maybe they did, maybe they didn't, I don't know. But it, it, she says if someone, when she was caught in a uh, domestic violence situation, she said, if someone would have asked me 
Are you safe? Do you feel okay? Are you okay? Are you in fear? Those couple of little sentences might have produced a different result. She may have said, you know what? No, I'm not okay. I, this, I'm with this guy and, and I don't feel safe. And that might've changed everything right then and there. But uh, I just can't make that point enough. I think going forward, any offices, uh, any law enforcement, that one little quick, you know, are you okay? Do you feel safe? Uh, are you in fear? I think that that uh, Gisela brought that out and that's a great thing to employ when you're dealing with a domestic violence situation. You know something, that was a brilliant statement coming out of the mouth of someone who's not a law exactly. enforcement. And I exactly. thought it was such a great uh, yeah. thing to say. Beauty and brains. Thank you so much for the 999 super chat question. Do either of you believe the laundry parents know where Brian is or what he did to Gabby Petito? I, uh, yes, on both, on both uh, questions. 100%. Uh, I mean, the fact that yesterday the father was out mowing the lawn and they threw questions at him like, how do you feel about the fact that Gabby Petito was strangled to death? She lived in your house for two years. The guy didn't blink an eye. He didn't flinch. And, and that was only one question. They threw about eight or 10 at him. And he just kept mowing the lawn. Like it was an normal Sunday morning, just mowing the lawn, like nothing. They're guilty of knowing. I, I really wanted to get into, I'm glad she brought this up. If Brian committed this murder, which we all believe he did, he had to call somebody and his route back from where the murder took place in Wyoming. From Wyoming what, yeah. what, what exactly did he do? I don't think he just, killed her and went back home and didn't tell them it's impossible. I think his support system is his family and, and they'll have his phone records. Who did he call? Who did he talk to? You know, maybe he didn't call them up and say, listen, I just killed Gabby. I think it came out a little at a time, but the clear picture that I'm getting from when he got back to Florida, the clear picture that I'm getting is that they knew something and they lawyered him up and they acted like nobody's business that they weren't going to cooperate and they did everything in their power to protect their son and they bought that camp and they went on that trip. That in and of itself is very suspicious. Why, if the two months of camping, would they go out and buy a camper and take their son on a camping trip? Something is definitely rotten in Denmark there, as they say. 100%. Diane Wilson, a new member to the Police Off the Cuff family. Thank you so much, Thank you, Diane. Diane Wilson. Thank you so much for becoming a member. You know, this this case is um is complicated and it gets even more complicated the longer he's not apprehended. You know, although at the same time, uh the FBI and whoever actually winds up with the arrest and the prosecution of this homicide, they're building the case. They're taking their time, they're crossing their T's, they're dotting their I's, they're getting all their evidence together, electronic evidence, physical evidence. Um even their own, uh, the blog they did, all of those things will come into play. Uh, you know, at some point they could even, I mean, the parents really can't be interviewed because they're represented by counsel. You know, a lot of folks, a lot of you folks from Europe, you don't understand our, um, our laws in regards to right to counsel. And you always hear ad nauseum on every American TV show when the police make an arrest. Law and order loves this. When they make an arrest, the first thing they say is, you have the right to remain silent. I'm just going to tell you, and I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, the real police never do that. <laughs> they right, never, exactly. ever do that. For some reason, Hollywood loves that shit, yeah. and they do it all the it's time. It's dramatic. It's dramatic. Right. Miranda is either red on the ride to the precinct in the car, 
or read once you put the person in the interview room. It's never I, I've said never out done on the street. In the car. I've always done it exactly what you said. The latter sit down in an interview room. I start to talk to somebody that's going to be a suspect in a murder or any criminal activity. You read them their rights. It's usually done in the office, in the box, like you said, Billy. 100%. Kelly Grant, great question. Can the FBI or cops get the information from our Apple Watch? My kid got one when she was pregnant. It measured heart rate, sleep, and those things, so it could be used for the date and time. Yeah, I'm sure that they do have the ability to get all of that information. You know, all police departments, FBI, they all have electronic experts. The NYPD had the computer crime squad. And any questions you would have regarding anything electronic, they would come to the scene. They would download the hard drive of the computer. They could do deal with anything. And then we had another unit called TARU. I was just going to bring that up. Which stood for up. Technical Assistance Response Unit. And they did a lot of the electronic stuff too. So, yeah. But, you know, the NYPD is a 36,000-member department. So there's more units than, than uh, these small departments have, have personnel. So it's it's a little more sophisticated, uh, but the FBI, they they have all these toys and more, and better yet, the FBI has more money than than the Lord, you know, <laughs> and they they have your tax dollars and they're not afraid to spend it. Yeah, they have very deep pockets, and uh, there's been a few cases where they were instrumental in uh, getting things done expeditiously with regard to technical stuff, uh, phone dumps and uh, cell phone dumps. And, and you know, uh, again, you have the, uh, the – in the NYPD, we have the Technical Assistance Response Unit where if you have any video that needs to be downloaded, they, they know how to work all these uh, security systems, and uh, they're just a great help in uh, recovering evidence and stuff. Um, you know, going back to the prosecution, if there is going to be one someday of Brian Laundry, I mean, I've worked on cases where we didn't even have a body and we charged someone with a homicide based on circumstantial evidence and they were convicted and went to jail. Hey, look, hey, hey. look who's showing up. <laughs> Joe, I, we were explaining, they were asking, where's Joe Murray? Where's the silver fox? We said you got uh, caught up on the hearing, right? We're having trouble hearing your audio, Joe, but uh, I think- Yeah, J- Joe, why don't, why don't you sit down in your car and then you would probably be able to, we'll be able to hear you better. Yeah, we're, we're not we're not hearing Joe too well. Yeah, he's very difficult. I'm gonna, to I'm, hear. Gonna re- I'm gonna remove. Yeah, him bring right him back now. in when he's in the car. I'm, I'm, I'll bring him back. You know, he just he was he's just making five fifty an hour though, so I don't feel that bad from you know. Uh, <laughs> Listen, uh, I'm glad he came on because the the thing I was just getting at was you know you don't have to have a body per se. Uh, to to charge someone with a murder, you know, there's so many other components and what we've called and referred to circumstantial evidence. So I think that, uh, you know, I would like to expand on that with Joe when he comes on. Uh, Diane Wilson, thank you so much for the $5 super sticker. I was just going to add Joe in. Why don't we just read his, uh, 
his ad. Yeah, I'll, I'll do his commercial. There you go. Too. You can do his commercial right now. Joe Murray, president and accounted for. Joe Murray, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD, and he knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com, joe at jmurray-law.com. And as he was saying earlier, he's on a hearing for a police officer that is accused of police brutality, and he's the right man let's, for the let's job. Bring, let's bring him on to the show. Joe what, kind, Joe, what kind of car are you driving there anyway? Hey, this is a Ford Fusion. I'm I'm very uh, green and uh, energy. Oh, my God, Joe. I thought you were going to have like a, a Cadillac or a Range Rover or something. I've lost all respect <laughs> for you. He's not that kind of attorney. He's not that I've lost kind of all attorney. respect for you. I thought, yeah. We got good audio, good audio on you, Joe. It's much better. We couldn't hear you much before. Much better. All right. Sorry about that. I was just inside the precinct. I thought I'd get a shot. Uh, you know, it's really, uh, it's really unfortunate what's going on. This retaliation. Uh, in any event, I I'm sorry for getting in late. Let's get into it. Okay, Joe. What do you think of the uh, the autopsy results and the fact that? The doctor, Dr. Brent Blue, actually blurted out at some point that he believed there was a domestic violence component. You want to touch base on that, Joe? Yeah, I think he was a fairly new uh, coroner that was just recently elected, so we got to cut him a little slack. Absolutely. Uh, he was very clear from the beginning that he's only allowed to give the cause of death and manner of death, and he did so, even though several reporters and that moron, John Walsh, kept pressing him. So I, I, I don't want to be too criti critical of him. I think he was making more of like a public policy statement, you know, that more attention should be given to domestic violence cases, and then, you know, unfortunately lumped in this case. Uh, but I, I don't want to be too critical of him. He's a new guy on the job. Uh, but again, it's, it's just a series of missteps in this case, in my opinion. Joe, you know, one of the things I think that, and and I, I know that much of the time you take a uh, an opposite position as uh, than we do, because you're thinking of the defense. But I believe that there is tons of um, circumstantial evidence in this case, of course, pointing towards Brian Laundrie. And I know you probably, you agree with that, yet you're thinking of, the what ifs, the, the creating doubt part of it. And what are your yeah, thoughts absolutely, about that? Yeah, absolutely, Bill. I, I, I just want to be clear. I mean, you know, just from statistics even, we're talking about, you know, a, a domestic situation, the two of them going away together. They have prior domestic violence. So statistically, he is the primary suspect. He is always going to be the first person we look at. You look at the people closest to the victim. So... Do I believe, you know, it, it, it's more likely that it is him than someone else? Yes. But do I believe that we can actually say 100% like so many people, including John Walsh, who are condemning him? No, because as of now, the government. Oh, we lost his video. His we, lost, we lost your audio, Joe. Somebody tried to call me. Okay. Oh, okay. 
You got to so, you got to uh, put you got to put, you put it on do not disturb. On do not disturb. Oh shoot. Okay. But yeah, let's just, just finish with that. Take uh, a chance. Yeah. A lot of these people are convicting them and condemning them. The government hasn't even charged them with the murder yet to our knowledge. There may be <clears throat> there may be an indictment that had yet to be unsealed that perhaps are waiting for an apprehension. It's not going to speed the apprehension by unsealing the other indictment. But uh, and I'm not saying there is one. It's possible. Sure, sure. I, l listen, Joe, I get where you're coming from. I agree with what you're saying. Uh, nobody's been charged. We don't know what evidence has been recovered from cell phones. Um, you know, uh, the autopsy may have yielded some evidence that could connect Brian to the actual murder. And then there's another component that I, I wanted to bring up. I started to touch on it earlier. You know, in the travels home from uh, Wisconsin to Florida, I'm sorry, Wyoming to Florida, when Brian left Wyoming, uh, wherever he did stop, I would have detectives go there, look for video, look for witnesses, see if he uh, interacted with anyone. And if there's good video, I would try to examine to see if he had any defensive wounds on him, things of that nature. So you're going to put all of this circumstantial case of uh, circumstantial evidence together for the case folder. And then the one other thing that I was starting to talk about when you first came in, there have been cases where we've charged people with murder without even a, a, a dead body. The body's never been recovered. They've been charged and they were convicted. So the the, the level that we have to get is uh, we got to get a jury of a person's peers, whoever the person is, a jury of their peers to agree beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think with all the components of circumstantial evidence, I think that that threshold will be met on this case. I know that there'll be a great defense attorney like yourself that'll make arguments and it'll go through the process and all of that I'm okay with. That's the criminal justice system that we have in the United States. And I think it's probably the best uh, that you can come up with, uh, you know, in, in a civilized uh, society. So, um, you know, based on that, listen, we don't know everything. There's, it's clear. None of us have access to the case folder, but I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence at this point. I, you know, agree, you know, I agree with you. You know, Joe, I was uh, one of the things, of course, um, we would all agree if you believe in our system that uh, someone is innocent to proven guilty. And we're not commenting on his innocence or guilt. We're, we're commenting on the fact whether the, the police or the FBI has a strong enough case to make an arrest. Do they have probable cause at this point? And my feeling is, uh, is yes, I think they do. And if they found him today, would they charge him? Would he be arrested for this murder? Or would they still just hold him on that uh, unauthorized use of an access device charge? <clears throat> I'm sorry. Just to answer that, I mean, this is kind of like a loaded question because I'm going to say no, but they probably will because they have so much more information than we have. But based on <clears throat> just what we know now, no, that's not enough. But uh, again, I just want to preface that with I know they have so much more because of cell phones, you know, all, all types of transactions that were done, credit card. So they can pretty much put together a good timeline that will possibly put him on the scene at this, you know, alleged time. I think that kind of circumstantial evidence really hurts him. I'm sure there's going to be some forensics. You know, that might point to him in, in a certain way. I, I really do think 
they should be careful with this and take their time and proceed with caution. Because as a defense attorney, I see so many holes to jump through here where reasonable doubt is, is going to come out. I mean, you know, just the nature of it. She was there for 23 days. They had these prior domestics. And we know at least twice he's walked away. He walked, he locked the door and walked away in a domestic violence situation. And then he flew home. And we don't know for a fact if that was because of another domestic violence situation or that was after the August 12th. He couldn't see her until the 13th. And then he made arrangements to go. I, we don't know. There's so much we don't know. But I see potentially, you know, that could be raised as, you know, an issue that when you try to say that's his M.O., you know, the defense can easily disprove that. Say, no, his M.O. is when he gets into a heated situation with her, he walks away. He goes away. So I, I think that's a problem. And the fact that that other domestic situation was so scrutinized, there's video she's talking about. They, The officers are pointing out they saw scratches. So even, Bill, even, you know, DNA that could be recovered from under her nails, you can't time DNA and say, oh, this was last Thursday. This one is fresh. It's It happened yesterday, you know? And then we have a body that's 23 days old. There's no way you can make that leap. So a lot of what would have been great evidence is not so good evidence anymore. and leaves room for that horrible phrase that all prosecutors hate, reasonable doubt. Right. There's always reasonable doubt. Allison Rogers, thanks for the $5 super chat. You have a question uh, you're late to the chat. Why can't they bring the parents in for questioning? I just don't understand. I know you're probably from Great Britain. All laws state once you invoke counsel, you cannot be questioned by law enforcement unless the counsel is present with you and no attorney is ever going to agree Wait. To, be, to be questioned unless a proffer, and that's a whole other area. There's some other thing that I would do as a prosecution uh, uh, district attorney or a prosecutor, they may not be able to be questioned by law enforcement because they're represented by an attorney. But based on the fact, if he did make calls in his ride back home from uh, Wyoming to Florida, I would have a subpoena. I would have them in court. I would ask them a specific question. What conversation did you have with Brian on this specific date and time? And they would probably invoke their fifth amendment right that they don't want to self-incriminate themselves. And that's would be very powerful. If you put all the other components together, all the other circumstantial evidence, and I would go to, I wouldn't let them just answer one question and say, you know, let them be uh, released. They're going to, no, I would ask them a series of questions. What did Brian tell you about Gabby Petito not being present that she lived in your house for two years when he came back on September 1st. And then the mother would say, or the father, well, I want to invoke my uh, fifth amendment right to self-incrimination. And I think even though they're not saying anything, it's powerful for a jury to say, what are they trying to hide? Because the first, if I was, if I want to be objective and I'm sitting in the jury and I know what I know about this case and the mother gets on the stand, Brian's mother and says, I don't want to discuss what conversation I had with my son when he came back about Gabby and she's been gone for two years. What does that tell you? That's, that's telling me they're hiding something. So all of these components, and we may just see just that, what I just laid out that may come to, to fruition. If there's a trial, if, if Brian is eventually found in charge. So there's a lot of things that can be done 
on the prosecution side to build a, 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 a circumstantial evidence case. Allison Rogers, well, you know, thank you. Joe, let me okay, just address her. Uh, sorry, yeah. Joe, I disagree. Two witnesses, he beat her. The restaurant argument, they are great witnesses, Gabby. He grabbed her face. All great evidence. That's, you know, Allison, that is, again, circumstantial evidence for his propensity toward violence. Right. But none of those things say that he killed her. But it's, it shows a propensity uh, toward violence. Go ahead, Joe. Let me just address a couple of things because uh, these are issues that are, are coming up quite often and quite frequently. And I kind of like give the general, you know, application of a law. But let me just be specific here. Whenever the police want to talk to someone, anyone, you all have the right to refuse if they're asking you on a voluntary basis. Now, if you do engage in a voluntary conversation with an officer, and most people do, if you do engage in that voluntary, uh, you know, like you guys in the squad, you'll invite somebody up to come in and, and interview them. But at some point where they make an admission or some uh, inculpatory statement where now you feel like I have enough probable cause to make an arrest and you take steps to confine them to such degree that a reasonable person will not feel as if they are free to leave. So now we have a custodial situation. Once you do that, now you have to stop the questioning and read Miranda and say, okay, because you're not letting them go. You have enough to make an arrest. So then it would be up to them if they want to waive their Miranda rights and go forward. Now, in this circumstance, you, you can't be punished for invoking a constitutional freedom. It can't be used against you. But in this case, they were not under arrest initially and refused to answer questions. But they did it through an attorney. So that kind of sanitizes it. It's not them refusing to answer. It's the advice of counsel saying, my clients are not going to talk to you. So, I mean, there's, there are a couple of nuances here that we have to be mindful of. But to address what you said, Phil, I think a prosecutor would love to bring them into the grand jury. But there's always the danger in a case like this especially in a grand jury, you never want to ask a question of somebody you don't know the answer to. Now, if they're refusing to be interviewed, you really don't know what information they know. And, you know, putting them in there without knowing that you're taking a big risk that they're going to say something that could hurt your case. And, and, you know, taint that grand jury. I, w I wouldn't put them in the grand jury. I would put them if there was a trial. I would put them right on the stand in the trial, subpoena them, bring them onto the stand, and ask them those questions. Because we, we know there's going to be an electronic connection between Brian and his mother through cell phones. He definitely talked to her on his, on his way home, whether his mother or father. He talked to somebody. He didn't do that ride home. Uh, you know, two day trip without calling somebody. There's no way. I doubt it very, very highly. And even when I he agree. got home, yeah. And even when he got home, the fact that they went and got him an attorney and, and, and they started with the attorney. So I would ask, what, what did Brian tell you 
was the relationship with him and Gabby based on the fact that he came home with her van and she was not present and she lived in your home for two years. And I would love to hear the answer to that question. Although I think at this point, she's not going to have an answer. She's going to invoke her fifth amendment. That's what I would think she well, would do. That's why I say grand jury, because usually you get immunity when you testify at a grand jury, but you cannot invoke your Fifth Amendment privilege if you have no jeopardy. So if the prosecutor in presenting this case to a grand jury gives you immunity, then you, you're not in jeopardy of, of being prosecuted. So you, you're not incriminating yourself. So you would be compelled to testify because there's no legal jeopardy for you. That's why you could do that in a grand jury. Okay. At a you trial... Know Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Joe, we we, uh, we didn't want to go really beyond much more than an hour today. Uh, but I, I, this is so fascinating. And I mean, I need you to come back is what I'm saying. Yeah, we got to do yeah, it. Because challenge. we spent a lot of time on the evidentiary, on the um, Barbara Butcher did a brilliant presentation on Duty Ron's show. But I, I would really like to address more of the legal questions and, uh, you know, and the beyond the reasonable doubt, because of course, no one that's watching this show wants to hear that Brian Laundry didn't do it. I shouldn't say no one, but 99% yeah. wants to hear that he did it. So we're going to have to bring you back. Kim Holmes. Thanks for the $5 super sticker. Uh, also, uh, there's someone else I got to thank uh, thank all you people. If you haven't well, subscribed. I, I have an opinion that I think he's a, a major suspect. Uh, you know, I, that's who I'd be focusing on. But I want to see the evidence, too. I don't want to put somebody in jail, and neither do you, Bill, and neither do you, Joe, I'm sure of it, that didn't do it. But I think that there's plenty here, and that's why we got to go over it in the next episode for sure. 100%. Yeah, so, you know, it's very important. There's a lot to un unpack here that explains why the laundries are acting the way they are, including the parents, including even hiring this attorney who's a real estate attorney. They were more concerned by my appearance of it, by the appearance. It looks like they were more concerned with the personal relationship, the trust factor, than his legal expertise in, in as a trial attorney. And that to me is, is a sign of what's going on here. So there's so much here to unpack. I'm happy to come back. I'm glad you're addressing it and not just parroting what everyone else is doing. Call these signs. Thank you so much for the 449 Super Chat. Joe, if he 100% did it and gets caught, could he actually be found not guilty? Of course. No defense attorney yeah. ever wants to answer a question like that. But No, yeah. I think OJ was guilty. I was going to be found not that. guilty. But, but that's not an injustice. It's not a matter of, you know, whether or not they were guilty or not guilty. You have to defend the process. And if there was, see, I try to explain to juries, you have to presume they're innocent. Just think, figure a gauge, right? You presume they're innocent. And then you don't get to go into that red line, which is guilty, unless you're so convinced of the evidence. And I've even said that to juries. You may think he's guilty. It may look like he's guilty. But unless you are so certain beyond a reasonable doubt, you have to. You're required. And the judge is going to instruct you, find him not guilty. So that's, Joe, that's uh, Joe, I, I have an ex Joe, I have an expression on this show. If it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it has feathers like a duck, it's a duck. Having said that, 
we're going to have you come back in the next day or two. I'll see what your schedule is and Phil's schedule is. This is an important topic. We got to address it. We really, uh, Phil, I'll just give you quick, guys. I'll give you quick last words and we got to go. Quick last words. Uh, condolences to Gabby Petito's family. They may have cremated her body yesterday and they'll probably carry little lockets with some of her ashes in it. I can't even imagine what they must be going through. My my heartfelt condolences to them. And um, I'll throw it to you, Joe. Last words. Yeah, I, I just want to pair with your saying there. It's so important. This Petito family, especially having met and spoke to Joe Petito, you know, I think I don't want this to become a circus. And I see like with Dog jumping in and John, John Moron, I'm going to call him if he wants to use names. I, I, I don't like it. I don't like to see this circus because we're talking about real victims and real families who have to live with this. So I, I'm with you, Phil. God bless the Petito family and, and all our, our prayers should be with them. Amen. I want to say also God bless the Petito family and folks up. Uh, this has been Police Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. On behalf of myself and Phil Grimaldi and the great defense attorney, Joe Murray, we're going to say good night now. Good night, everybody. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. One episode just ain't enough.